Ah, the Beatles, right? Well, before we jump in, uh, something real quick. Uh, you, you probably heard Carmen mention in the announcements that our love feast is coming up next week. And I just want to encourage you again, if you are a covenant friend, uh, we really encourage you to carve out some time to join us at 530 next Sunday night. That'll be here. Uh, if you're someone who's been around for a little bit and maybe you haven't yet taken the step of covenant friendship, and, and covenant friend is just kind of a fancy term that we use for our members. Uh, but if, if that's something that you're interested in hearing more about, please do uh, grab Andrew, grab me. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to be a covenant friend and what it might look like for you to take that next step. But this, of course, was the Beatles. Uh, 1965, uh, I think, is about the year that this song came out. And two things strike me from this video. It struck me the first time I watched it. The first is that as much with, uh, with all this talk about our shortening attention spans, when was the last time you heard a song that was like two minutes long? Really? I mean, it's, it's a short song. But secondly, it, there's something paradoxical about John Lennon belting out, I'm a loser, as all of these young women scream their heads off, right? And, and this is kind of as Beatlemania is really starting to gain some traction. And they are a force to be reckoned with in, on the global scene. And here's John Lennon writing songs about being a loser. What's that all about? <clears throat> it's interesting to, to read uh, some of the kind of reflection of some of the band themselves as they look back on this stage of their journey. Uh, Lennon was actually influenced a lot by Bob Dylan right about this time. As you can kind of see from the harmonica and the sunglasses, but even more so in the, the edge that his lyrics started to take on. And as Lennon reflected on this time, he said, instead of projecting myself into a situation, I would try to express what I felt about myself. So he, he wanted to be a little bit more honest, raw about what was really happening. And out of that comes this declaration, I'm a loser. Paul McCartney, in thinking back on this time, said, looking back, I think songs like I'm a loser were John's cries for help. And this is probably weird for you, can be weird for us to think about someone like a John Lennon who, you know, probably at one point or another, we, well, depending on how old you are, if you're looking at this, some of you might be watching this and going, who is that? I don't even know. And I'm sorry, ask your parents later, they'll tell you. Um, but for many of us, the John Lennon, he's, he's an icon. And to think about someone who has had that type of influence, has achieved that kind of fame, being someone who struggles deeply with how he sees himself. It's a little startling. But it's also pretty common. If you read any of biographies of famous or successful people, you realize that this actually happens a lot more than you might think. That those who achieve amazing things do so even with a gnawing sense that they're not good enough. With that, that voice in their head screaming loudly. What voice, you ask? Well, you probably aren't asking because you know what that voice is. We kind of all have that voice in our head, some of us to larger degrees than others. You know, the, the voice that piles on when you make a mistake, it might just be kind of a simple mistake, but it just won't let you forget about it. Days later, maybe weeks, maybe even years. Or th that voice that pops up when you introduce yourself for the first time to someone, uh, 
and then you, you forget their name, so then the next time you, you introduce yourself to them again, and they're like, we met last week. And you're like, ah, I should have known. And, and rather than just kind of brushing it off, and like, hey, everybody makes mistakes, you kind of beat yourself up over it a lot. Or, or maybe it, the voice comes out when you get a little harsh with your kids. You, you know, they're, they're acting out, and you've said it once or twice or three or seven times, and finally you just kind of lose it. And later, you, you're, it's not just that you're like, ah, I wish I, I wish I wouldn't have done that. You're like, I am a horrible parent. Why can't I figure this out? Everybody else seems to be able to figure this out. Why not me? Or maybe it's the voice that comes up when you're frustrated in your career. And you, you, you think you should be doing better. You should be going further. And you look around and it seems like others are. Why not you? And that voice comes out and says, well, it's because you're a, you're a loser. Because those people know what they're doing and you don't. You know that voice. There are a few things in life that I've found that bring that voice out so clearly in an area that doesn't matter as the game of golf. You may not have had this experience. Maybe you've never played golf. And if not, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. Now, some of my friends who are golfing enthusiasts are, they're just, they're going to leave any minute now because I said that. But I'm holding this, and it's actually a risk. So you should just kind of brace yourselves just in case something comes hurtling into the audience. Um, but golf is one of those games that seems really simple, right? The concept is fairly simple. You have this little ball, and there's a hole out there. And you want to get this ball into that hole. And most of us look at that, and we're like, I didn't do that. Give me the stick thing, right? Like, give me that thing. And I'll go do this, right? It's called a club or an iron, right? It's the, I know. Anyway, so, uh, but the thing about golf is, if you've ever played it or watched it, you know that there's a lot more to it than meets the eye. And in fact, for people like me, the assumption that you can just step onto the golf course maybe once a year and do something reasonably, I don't know, palatable, it, is kind of funny. So, for example, uh, a couple years ago, I was out with some friends, and these are friends who, they go golfing regularly. I don't know why or where they find the time, but they do it, and once in a while, they'll invite me to come along, because we're friends, and they hate me. And so, I always say yes, because I love being outside, and I'm a little bit competitive, and I always remember that time when I was in the golf club in high school, when I was okay. And I'm like, oh... And so, have you ever done that, and you project that former you onto your current you, and you're like, I'm not bad at golf. I mean, I'm not great. I'm not Tiger, but eh, I can hold my own, right? And so, this was one of those times. They're like, hey, what if we go to this golf course? And, and I was like, sure, let's do that. And so, we got there, and I knew it was gonna, I was going to have trouble. When we get to the first hole, and there's some dude who looks like he's serious about this, and he's got a clipboard and a hat, and he's watching me. I'm like, who is this guy? And what is he doing? And it turns out, I don't know what his official name is, but apparently he's the bouncer for the, the green, more or less. Like, he's the guy to make sure that if I make too many holes with my club, I do not make it to the next hole. So I find this out as I'm going up to take my first swing. And um, as I'm getting ready, I also notice that for some reason, the designers of this course 
thought it would be a good idea to build a row of condominiums right along the right side of the fairway. And I'm going, that seems really odd that they would do that. Clearly, they know that that's just an accident waiting to happen. I mean, not from me, but from somebody. You know how this goes, right? So I step up, and I, I mean, I'm feeling pretty good about it. It's a beautiful day. There's no wind. I'm like, this is going to be great. And I, I whack it as hard as I can. And of course, it hits right square in the center of that first condominium. And the guy with the clipboard just shakes his head and writes something. I don't know what it was, but he wrote something. A few holes later, I'm starting to get frustrated because I'm realizing I'm not who I think I am on the golf course. And so it's really starting to irritate me because my friends are okay, and they're starting to get a little annoyed that I'm taking so long. So and we get, we get to, I don't know what hole we're on. We're on hole like seven, and I think we're doing nine. And so it's hot, and so my hands are sweaty, and I'm getting ready to, you know, I, I've got an iron. I don't know which one it is. And I rented the clubs. They're not mine, right? And so I go to take a swing, and I'm not going to do it here. Don't worry. I see some people getting tense because you see me lining up here. Don't worry. I'm not going to swing. Um, but I, I go to swing, right? And I'm, I'm angry about how I've done so far, so I probably swing a little bit more carelessly than I would otherwise. And wouldn't you know, I got a, it was actually my best hit of the day. It was, the, the ball went straight. It landed just a few feet from the green. But when I followed through on my swing, the, glo- the uh, club slipped out of my hands and went spiraling. One of those slow motion spirals where you can watch it the entire way. And, you, and, and there's, a, there's like water to the left. And in front of the water is a large field of grass that's about yay high. And I'm just going, I am going to have to buy a golf club. That's all I could think about. And it lands right in the middle of that field. For the next 20 minutes, I wandered through that field with another rented club, using it like a machete, <laughs> completely unable to find the club. Go back, tail between my legs to the uh, golf pro at the, at the shop, and I'm like, hey, how much for that club? Thankfully, I got the, uh, if, you ever, if you're bad at golfing and they offer you the new clubs, or the used ones, always get the used ones. They're like, oh, the used ones, you're good, you're fine. So I didn't have to pay for it. But, but it was horrible, right? And, it, and if you've had any kind of similar experience with golf, you know what this is like. Because you think you ought to be able to do a good job. And so when I'm out there in the weeds using this club as a machete, I'm not going, man, I wish I would have practiced harder, right? I'm, going, I'm saying lots of different things, angrily. Because I should be able to do this. I don't, I don't need to be an expert, but I should be able to figure this out. I'm reasonably athletic. This is not that difficult. Why can't I make it do what I want it to do? And this is actually why golf is such a great analogy for life. Because how many times in life do you get to that point where you're like, this should not be that hard. It seems like other people can do this. They can figure it out, right? Like, Because you look at their Facebook profile and their Twitter feed and their Instagram account, or you look at their, like, the outside of their house is nicer than yours or whatever it is that you're using to judge yourself, and you're looking around, you're going, they figured it out, why can't I? And then that voice comes up. It says, you're a loser. You're a loser. Why can't you figure this out? Many of us have really unreasonable expectations for ourselves. We, we have these, these measuring sticks by which we judge whether or not we're doing well in life. 
And they've been, you know, they've been acquired somewhere along the way, whether it's through uh, messages that we took in as, as children or uh, you know, from parents or along the way from other adults in our lives or however it is that we've adapted them. We've kind of we've developed these rulers that we use to, to measure ourselves and decide whether or not we're doing all right. And when we don't live up to that, the voice comes out, that loser voice. I remember my friend used to tell me about his dad, who was a very, very um, successful executive uh, with a, a tech firm, lots of money, several houses, the kind of guy you're like, ah, that would be nice. But he would tell me stories about how they would go golfing together and how on those golf courses he would see all of his dad's demons kind of come out. Because if he would shank a a shot, it wasn't just frustration. It was all of these really derogatory things about himself that would come out of his mouth, where he would berate himself over and over again for the simplest mistake. He said, the problem is it, it wasn't just golf. That was life all the time when he would make a mistake he would beat himself up over and over and my friend said to me he's like and and that same voice is in my head now I have to fight it every day and some of you know what that's like the voice that says idiot loser you're not a good enough parent You're not a good enough spouse. Not a good enough son or daughter. Not a successful enough fill in the blank. Not wealthy enough. You're not good enough. All of us live with that voice at some level. And it's not just that some of us do and some of us don't. There's kind of a continuum. For some of us, it's a bigger issue than for others. But a sociologist and researcher, Brene Brown, talks about it through the lens of perfectionism. But she talks about perfectionism as a continuum. She says it this way. I don't think that some people are perfectionists and others are not. I think perfectionism exists along a continuum. We all have some perfectionistic tendencies. For some, perfectionism may only emerge when they're feeling particularly vulnerable. For others, perfectionism can be compulsive, chronic, and debilitating, similar to addiction. But for all of us, wherever we are on that continuum, when life doesn't go our way as it often doesn't, the voice comes out. We don't measure up. We're not good enough. And the result is we're not at peace with ourselves. We're uneasy. We're unsettled. We are beginning a new series. It's going to be a brief series. For about three weeks, we are looking at a very practical application of life on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection and how it influences how we engage with ourselves and the world around us. One of the primary things that we come to understand about what Jesus did and does is that he, through his death and resurrection, brings peace to us and to the world. But it's not simply something that we kind of passively sit back and kind of comes over us. 
but it's something that we actively engage in. We participate in. We wage peace with ourselves and with others. So this week, we're going to look particularly at this idea of waging peace with ourselves, how we participate in what Jesus is doing to bring peace in our lives with us. And I think it's important that we begin there. Next week, we're going to look some at the interpersonal stuff. That's where we tend to think when we think about peace. We think about the conflict that happens between people. Uh, But before we go there, we need to talk about the conflict that happens in us. Because as I I love this phrase I got in a book, a a friend gave me a book called The Anatomy of Peace that I was reading through, and there's this phrase that I just kept chewing on over and over that's really true. You probably know this. It says, we can't be agents of peace until our own hearts are at peace. We can't be agents of peace until our own hearts are at peace. And, And this is part of the good news that Jesus brings. If you're familiar with the story at all, and maybe you've seen this a little bit if you're reading through it with us um, in this Renew 90-Day Reading Plan, there's a lot of talk of peace as Jesus comes. In the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, as he looks ahead to Jesus, Jesus is referred to as the Prince of Peace. When Jesus is born, his his birth calls uh, angels to call out peace on earth, goodwill to all people. When Jesus is getting ready to go to his death on the cross, he says to his, his followers, his disciples, that he's leaving them a gift, and that gift is peace of mind and heart in John's Gospel, chapter 14. As we look through the rest of the New Testament, one of the really clear fruits of what Jesus did that we see come up again and again and again is peace with God. And finally, when Paul lists in his letter to the Galatians, a list of the fruits of the Spirit, one of the fruits, one of the, the results of God's Spirit living in us, working in us, is peace. Peace is kind of a big deal in the New Testament. In fact, if you look at all of the books in the New Testament, there's only one book that doesn't have this idea of peace, and that's First John. Interestingly enough, there's two other letters from John that both do talk about peace. I'm guessing he wrote the first one and then in retrospect looked back and was like, God, I forgot that thing, and then wrote two more. Um, Not exactly, but you know. Um, Okay, so real quickly, I want to look at two passages specifically from some of Paul's letters. Paul's one of the the early leaders in the church. He wrote a bunch of letters in the New Testament. I want to look at two brief passages from Paul uh, to kind of point out some of how this theme of peace plays out in his letters. We're going to start at Colossians chapter 1. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. It's kind of towards the end of the New Testament. If you don't, we'll have the scripture up here on the screen. So it's Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. And we pick up with Paul's kind of in the middle of of a hymn or a poem that he's reciting about the nature of who Jesus Christ is. Verse 19. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence. And you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. And then in his letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God 
because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. I could go on. You look throughout the New Testament, and again and again, this idea of peace is a gift that is given to us as a result of Jesus' death and resurrection. Peace with God, and subsequently, peace with ourselves. We no longer have to be at war. We can have peace. But how does that work? Because the fact of the matter is, most of us aren't at peace. We are already said that whether you would consider yourself a follower of Jesus or not, I would think what we said about that voice in your head probably holds true. That you still struggle with that uneasiness, that sense of self-condemnation and self-judgment. So how can both things be true at the same time? How can it be that Jesus gives us the gift of peace that we don't have to earn, and yet we feel like we're always not at peace? I think it's because of what we're focused on because of what we're paying attention to. Think about it this way. Think about uh, sleep. Right? Now, uh, maybe some of you haven't gotten enough sleep, and so it's hard. Don't go to sleep if you can. Um, but sleep is not something that you, for most of us, we don't have to earn. Now, some of us, you know, we, we struggle with not getting enough sleep, or um, this might be a problem for a few of us. But by and large for people, sleeping is not something you have to work at, it kind of comes on you. In fact, we have to work to not fall asleep sometimes. That, you know, if you're like me and sometimes you're driving late at night, you recognize this really, really clearly. You have to fight sleep to stay away. But the times when I have lost sleep, I'm a good sleeper. Um, my wife gets frustrated with me because she struggles with insomnia and I struggle with staying awake sometimes. And so, um, but the times that I have laid awake at night are generally those times when I can't get my mind off of that thing, right? Whatever that thing is, whatever's going on in my my personal life or work or relationships, that thing just keeps churning in my head and I can't stop thinking about it. And as long as I can't stop thinking about it, I can't sleep. Even though that's what I was made for, that's what my body wants, I'm fighting it with every thought, with every rumination. And I think this is a lot of what happens with the peace in our lives. We're so focused on that measuring stick. We're so focused on judging ourselves, on, on holding ourselves up against some arbitrary measurement that we just can't, we can't allow the peace that Christ is offering to take its place in our hearts. Think about it this way. Um, you may recognize this painting from Salvador Dali. And it's kind of... Uh, famous in terms of inviting us to think about perspective, right? Depending on what you focus on in this picture, of course, you see different things. And there's other pictures that do this. This is probably the most famous one. But the thing that we notice is that it's really true, that whatever it is that you're focused on really shapes how you understand that painting. It might be an elderly couple staring into each other's eyes, or it might be a man on a, playing a guitar with a sombrero and his buddy holding up the older woman's forehead, whatever he's doing over there. I don't exactly know. Um, but depending on what it is that you're focused on, 
there's two different pictures. And you know this in life, right? Like, you've had those conversations, I'm guessing. Hopefully, hopefully you haven't done this, but I'm guessing you probably have. I have. Where you get that text from someone, and you're so focused on where you think the relationship is and what you think is going on that you're completely incapable of understanding what the text actually says. You're interpreting it in light of what you're thinking about, which is whatever's going on with you and that person. And so maybe you misunderstand it. You think, oh, this person's being completely sarcastic and they're saying things that are hurtful and they just thought they were, you know, saying something funny or whatever it is. Whatever it is that you're focused on, that's the thing that shapes how you understand the world, how you see the world, how you experience it. And it's true with the peace that Jesus offers, the peace that Jesus gives. Our focus determines our ability to receive it or not. There's a great example of this in our reading. I thought about it this week when we were reading through Matthew together. This first weekend renew, we're reading through the Gospel of Matthew. And there's this great story that illustrates this perfectly. We find it in Matthew chapter 16. And, and the disciples, the, the students of Jesus, have seen Jesus do a lot of different things. One of the big things they've seen Jesus do is take a little bit of food and feed a lot of people. There was an experience with 5,000 people where Jesus took a little bread, a little fish, fed them all. And then a few chapters later, we get to 4,000 people, little bread, little fish, Jesus feeds them all. And you're like, wow, okay. So there's a point that the author is trying to make here, that Jesus is trying to make here, about something with the bread and the fish. Then we come to this time kind of after this second feeding, the second 4,000. This is in chapter 16, uh, verses, verse 5. And we read, Later, after they, Jesus and his disciples, crossed to the other side of the lake, the disciples discovered they had forgotten to bring any bread. Watch out, Jesus warned them. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. At this, they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. Jesus knew what they were saying, so he said, You have so little faith. Why are you arguing with each other about having no bread? Don't you understand even yet? That, don't you remember the 5,000 I fed with five loaves and the baskets of leftovers you picked up? Or the 4,000 I fed with seven loaves and the large baskets of leftovers you picked up? Why can't you understand that I'm not talking about bread? So again I say, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then at last they understood that he wasn't speaking about the yeast and bread, but about the deceptive teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is a human problem. This is how we work. Whatever it is that we focus on shapes how we experience the world. And these disciples, they couldn't... Jesus is trying to make a point here about the teachings of these religious leaders and how oppressive they were and how they worked their way through everything. But they missed it because all they could think about was, ah, bread. And it's silly to us looking back, but we do it all the time. Whatever it is that you're focused on, it shapes how you experience the world. It shapes how you engage in every relationship. And this is why it's so critical for us to wage peace first with ourselves because you can never engage rightly with another person if you're focused on the wrong thing, if you can't get your eyes off yourself and the the war that's waging within you. So so how can we begin to, to move forward? How can we get some traction to to kind of shift our focus. Well, Paul says this in his letter to the Philippians. He encouraged us to focus on what is true. 
He writes, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. Paul says that the way that we begin to to shift things, to, to change, is to shift our focus to things that are true. To fix our eyes on what is true. And to allow Jesus to shape the way we see the world as we do that. But this takes work. This isn't easy. I mean, if you think about it in terms of uh, like when a car gets stuck, if you've ever gotten your car stuck uh, on a snowy road, and you know that your tendency, kind of your intuitive response to that is if I keep hitting the gas, we will eventually get out of here, right? Like that's, that's, that's the answer. That's answer one. Let me just keep hitting this pedal. And, and you know whenever there's an inexperienced driver you come across up who's stuck, that's, they just keep kind of going. Or if they're in mud, they just keep digging, right? Keep digging deeper and deeper. And you can actually get yourself into what? A rut, right? That's where that comes. You get into a rut or you, you get yourself deeper and deeper in trouble if you just keep hitting the gas again and again. You keep trying to do the same thing. You can't get out of it. So what do you do? Well, you need some traction. You need something that can help you grab a hold. And so, like in snow, sometimes, you know, people will, like, throw bags of kitty litter or sand or something in their, their trunk. So if they get stuck, they can throw it out there. Or if you've ever gotten stuck on ice or on snow and, you know, you kind of dig down so that you can get a hold of uh, the, the pavement so maybe your tire can catch a hold of it. It's that same idea. You need something to give you traction to help you move, to help you move in a different direction. And I think one of the gifts that we get, one of the opportunities, one of the tools that we're given to help us get traction, kind of, if you will, the kitty litter in our trunk, is confession. Confession. First John 1 John 1.9, while John does not talk about peace in his first letter, he does talk about confession, which I think is really helpful. He says, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. I think confession is a critical tool for us to shift focus, to begin to focus on what's true, and even to begin to find peace. Now that might seem kind of counterintuitive because it sounds like I'm saying if you focus on what you're doing wrong, then you will have peace. Kind of, because often what we do is because we have this sense that we are supposed to be something that we're not, that we should be better than we are or more than we are or whatever that is, whatever that kind of ideal is that we've created that we can't measure up to, because we often think of that when we make mistakes or when we do things that are self-centered or greedy, then we tend to beat ourselves up even more because, oh, that's not how we're supposed to be. I should be different. Why can't I just fix it? But the good news of Jesus is that that's all of us. We're, we're all a mess. Some of us may do a little bit better job of covering it up on the outside than others, but we're just kind of all a hot mess. And the good news of Jesus is not that now we can work really hard and fix it, but that even, in, even when we're a hot mess, that we are loved and that we're, often, we're offered forgiveness. 
We're offered reconciliation, healing, transformation. Not because we deserve it or we've worked hard enough, but because he gives it to us because he loves us. And so really what confession does is it helps you to stop pretending. Because anxiety comes when you have to, when you kind of have to play the game, when you have to pretend like you've got it figured out and you don't. Because we all know that we don't. And so shame, uh, a friend of mine uh, has used the kind of a working definition of shame is the, the distance between who you really are and who you say you are. And I think that's actually really true and helpful is that so many of us walk around with shame because we know who we really are, but we feel like we're supposed to be someone else. Confession welcomes us into a space where we can say, this is actually who I am. This is what is true about me. But it reminds us that even though that's true, you are loved. That you are not defined by your sin. You are not defined by your brokenness. You are loved. And so we live in the truth. And we learn that we are loved. And it's in doing so that we find peace. This is how peace comes. Not by pretending we're something that we're not, but by owning who we are, but recognizing that we're loved. This is how we wage peace. By recognizing our sin and confessing it. And living in the knowledge that we're loved. But Paul talks about putting it into practice. So how could we do that? What's, what's a, a practical way that we can kind of work this out? And I think there's kind of two ways. One is what we just talked about here, this idea of confessing our sin to God, of being honest with God about our sin. But I think the second one is about being honest with others about our sin, particularly against them. Who are the people in your life that you have sinned against, that you have, because of a selfish decision that you made or maybe a... a thoughtless act you've created distance you've, you've created hurt where are those relationships and what might it look like for you to take the initiative to say I'm sorry I know it seems like a really little thing saying I'm sorry but it can actually be incredibly powerful to say I'm sorry is to simply live in the truth. It's to say, that thing I did, that I shouldn't have. That was wrong. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And what's wonderful about this is that they could actually say no. It's not the point. You could say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And they could say, actually, no. But your job is not to get them to say yes. Your job is not to convince them that you are worthy because if we're focused on the right thing, we recognize you're already loved. You don't have to earn anything. And so by saying you're sorry, you're simply saying, I've recognized that I've done some things that are hurtful in this relationship. I want to own that. This is actually a very empowering thing. You are not a victim of circumstances. Many of us create the circumstances that we are in. Learning to acknowledge that, confess it, and ask for forgiveness to say I'm sorry is a really empowering thing. It reminds us that, yeah, 
I'm actually participating in this. I'm making the life that I have in partnership with God, but I have ownership in this. I think if we began to be people who waged peace with ourselves by recognizing our own sinfulness, our own brokenness, but also recognizing the depth of God's love for us, and then living out of that by being quick to say, hey, here's where I've wronged you. Will you forgive me? I think we'd be shocked at the amount of peace that we live with on a day-to-day basis. On our ability to live more and more free from that domineering voice in our head. Free to make mistakes and learn from them and move on. Because our mistakes don't define us. The love of God does. And so we can live at peace. Okay. Well, let me uh, say a, a quick prayer for us as the worship team comes up to lead us in a final song. Well, Father, thank you for, um, for bringing us peace through Christ. And we thank you that that peace and your love for us is not something that we have to earn, but it's a gift that you give us. Would you help us to focus our attention on what's true? Would you help us as we go through this week to be able to fix our eyes on the things that are true about who you are and who we are and to live with courage, to take the risk to acknowledge our own sinfulness and brokenness and the ways that that has caused pain to ourselves and to others, to confess that to you and to others and to ask for forgiveness and then to live at peace because we know that we are loved. So thank you for the peace that you give. Would you help us to live in that more fully this week and every week? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.